Thank you, Rabbi. Appreciate that. It's good to be with you. I am the aforementioned Dave Mitchell, and uh, it's great to be worshiping together with you. Study God's Word, and uh, just thinking about some of the things that, that Matt was talking about with the, uh, the terrible, catastrophic events that took place in Paris. It's just incredible. It seems to me, and when you sort of live longer like me, you see that every generation seems to have its day where there are these terrorists and there are these evil people, where there is this, uh, this monstrous activity that you think, how would any individual or group of people conspire to want to do any of those things? And I remember as I was looking back and thinking about the household of God, as we're going to be talking about it, in 1971, I did a study program over in Europe and was in Paris. And one of the areas that we traveled to, and back in those days, and some have to go to your history books, there was a place called East Berlin and a place called West Berlin. And the Soviet Union had captured a lot of this territory coming out of World War II. And to keep people in East Berlin, they literally built these walls around this city. And it became like a big permanent prison for all the German citizens that were inside there. And I remember us driving through this gate where there were armed guards to get into East Berlin. And these horrendous areas where you could see on the right-hand side there, the stretch where these spikes where if anybody tried to drive a car or run across, there were either, either explosions there or we would hear stories of individuals that would try to race through this area and the guards would gun them down, kill them dead. You see pictures of these bodies that are just laying there that have been destroyed like that because they tried to escape from the East Berlin to West Berlin. We went inside to East Berlin and there we, it was literally like going from colored TV to gray and uh, black and white TV. Everything inside of East Berlin was totally gray. It was very drab. The silverware was cheap, cheap because they didn't want them to have knives that they could use against some of the guards. So you literally, it was like a city that was contained in a prison. On one of the walls that surrounds was this word, the world's too small for walls, as it begins to sever uh, the East Berliners from the West Berliners. And then we had this great president come along called Ronald Reagan. And I remember watching this when it happens. He stood in front of that wall in West Berlin. And those great famous words that now you sometimes will hear repeated, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And so in 1961, those walls were put up. And in 1989, 1990, those walls began to be torn down. It's interesting that in East Berlin, some of the psychiatrists were doing a study on what the uh, effect is of those walls upon the citizens of East Berlin. And they did an analysis and they discovered that the closer the East Berliners lived to the wall, the closer in proximity they were to the wall, there was a much higher, much higher accounting of people with mental disorders, anger and rage, addictions and feelings of rejection. The further away from the wall, the less those feelings were pronounced. And then in 1989, 1990, the wall began to be torn down. I remember seeing these images. It was unfathomable for me, having grown up in an era where my neighbors had bomb shelters, fearing that the Soviet Union would uh, bomb the United States of America, to watch these people, these young people that came on these walls that just a year before they would be gunned down dead. And almost within days, the wall was torn down. 
And then the psychiatrist did a study after the wall was torn down. And they found out that those individuals that had terrible mental disorders, had rage, had anger, had rejection feelings, and had addictions, that those things subsided just simply because the wall was torn down. And they called that emotional liberation. That there were individuals having emotional liberation because the wall was torn down. And I think about that wall and I think about the terrible things that happened in Paris and I think there are all of these groups of people that want to separate us, want to divide us, want to destroy us, want to create chaos in our communities, our countries, and in our hearts. And now there are some people in Paris today that are on their own emotional prison and understandably so. Do I dare go to a restaurant, walk down the street? And that's what the evil one wants for us. To separate us, to divide us, to cause anxiety and create emotional barriers between all that God wants to have in our hearts and lives. And that's why the Apostle Paul, to back up, wrote what he wrote in Ephesians 2. He speaks to these issues. The Word of God speaks relevancy to these issues. And this is why he says, when I experience the life of Christ, he begins to change me. It says in Ephesians 2.13, we looked at this two weeks ago, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What God wants to do through Jesus Christ is to change us, to experience a better way of life, to remove the walls. Because one of the first things that Jesus does is when he comes into our lives, as Paul says here, he begins to remove the walls. Notice what it says in Ephesians 2.14 and 15. Again, this goes back two weeks ago. For Jesus, he himself, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, establishing peace. Now, in that day, in the city of Ephesus, in the country that we today call Turkey, referred to in those days as Asia Minor, the Jew and the Gentile didn't get along. There were literally walls that kept them apart. In fact, one of the most segregated days was the day of worship as they had a courtyard for the women. They were walled off. The Gentiles, they were walled off. The priests, they're walled off from the people. The laymen of the Israelites, they're walled off. And so we have all these walls that were created, and the most segregated place was the place of the place of worship before Almighty God. And so when Paul says, I got the Jews and I got the Gentiles, I got these people who are living with walls between each other, we need to tear down those walls because Christ gets rid of the enmity, and he brings peace between groups of people that otherwise do not connect with one another. And so he wants us to be aware of the fact that there are walls that are there. In fact, one of the walls, you might remember, said this, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death which will follow. It's just unimaginable that a place where you come to encounter God has walls, let alone a wall that says you'll die if you go beyond it. So Paul's dealing with some pretty serious stuff. Today, as I'm thinking about this, we don't have those kind of walls. Uh, We have walls, but we don't have those kinds of walls. But here's some of the walls. I'm just thinking about this just for a way of review. I think about people and individuals and relationships that we have and that I have. You may have some of these as well. There are some people who have walls between each other because one individual betrayed the other. And there is no way we're going to overcome that wall in our own human strength. There are some people who have an unforgiving attitude against people who have wounded them. 
And we live with a wall between myself and that person. I know I've lived with those kind of walls. I've had people who have uh, shot the, the arrows of pain and have those wounds, and I, the last thing I want to have is any kind of relationship with them. And there's a wall there. And Jesus says, but I came to remove the walls. There's the wall of unfulfilled expectations. For any of us who are married today, you got married, and one of the things you learned is that there are unfulfilled expectations. You expected one thing, but over the course of that marriage, you probably found something very different. And sometimes we have partnerships, we have friendships, we have classmates in school, we have study groups, whatever it may be, and we think that we have an expectation of working together, honesty, that everybody's going to give their very best, get to work on time, a boss is going to treat me fairly, and we have unfulfilled expectations because it just simply isn't happening. And a wall goes up, and I refuse to try to get around that wall, and I hold it against them. And then there are the walls of sins that I do not forgive. Some of us have certain sins that we'll never forgive. Some of us have sins of classifications where they are the kind of sins that we should always rail against because other sins we never speak of. And so we have these various classes of sins. And some of us have sins that we're just simply never going to be forgiving. We think that there is just no way I'll have a relationship with someone who commits that kind of a sin. And then there are those who have anger walls where there's a brokenness between you and someone else. It might have been a father to a daughter. It might have been a spouse. It might have been a friend. It might have been a teacher to a student. But there's been so much anger there that the wall has gone up and there is just no way I'm letting you around that wall and there's no way I'm going around that wall and I want to keep it there because I need my safe zone. And so we have these walls that we create. And candidly, there are some of us who have walls between ourselves and God. And I'm not going to let God into my life. I don't trust him. I tried him and found him wanting. I prayed. I asked for something. He didn't give it to me. I thought I'd get in that school. I thought I'd get that job. I thought I would be healed from this disease. I thought this person would change. And wherever that is in your life, you might, like me, have a sense that, God, you're uncaring, you're absent, you seem to be distant, and I hold it against you. So we have these walls that we sometimes build. And, and Paul is speaking to these walls. Not the literal walls of the day in which the Jew and Gentile had separate courts, but the walls that we build up today. And then he says, what I do through Christ is not only tear down those walls, but I begin to change you. I begin to reconcile you. He says in verses 16 and 17 that he might reconcile or change. Every time you see the word reconcile, one of the words I like to put in its place to help me to really get it is the word change. Reconciliation for me and my salvation is where Jesus changes me from sin to righteousness. God doesn't change, but he changes me. So he says, I want to change you from into one body to God through the cross. The cross changes relationships, changes me by it having put to death the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. So we've got walls. Some of us do. Some of us are living with those, and maybe you don't, and we say, praise God. But we've got these things where God needs to change so we draw near to those who are far away and to those who are nearby. 
In that case, it was those far away, the Gentiles, for us nearby, the Jews. For us, it may be other people. It may be literally in this room, those who are far away, or it may be those who are far away emotionally, those who are far away from me in some sort of a physical way, those who are far away from me in some relational way. But God says, what I do in Jesus Christ is to draw those close together. That's what we want. And so he brings us to this point, so therefore we become the household of God. Let me read this wonderful four little verses that Paul has for us. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now catch these word images that Paul has here. This is how you and I are viewed by God. If we're a follower of Jesus, the walls are down, the heart is changed, this is how God views us. He says, you're not strangers, you're not aliens, you're God's household. You're part of the cornerstone with Jesus Christ. You're a building being fitted together. You're a holy temple in the Lord. We are a holy temple in the Lord. God says, that's how I see you. That's how I expect you to act. He says, you're built together. You're a dwelling place of God. We are a dwelling place of God as a church gathered here today. So let me take these one at a time and help illustrate what I'm talking about, what I believe Paul is talking about. There are four things that happens. When Jesus takes the wall down, Jesus changes my heart and my mind, so I become one body, I am reconciled with him and one another, Four things should take place in our lives. This is what should happen at Calvary Church. This is what should happen to you and me. Here's number one. I become a household where no one's a stranger. We begin to view others as fellow citizens, fellow saints. That's what he says here. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. There's no strangers. Just imagine for just a moment. Just think about that for a minute. I was thinking about that. I thought, well, Joy and I have two daughters. There are Jessica and Kirstie, some of you know. They're grown adults now, have their own lives that they're living out. But imagine if when they were born and then they begin to become a toddler and they're walking and they're going down the hallway. We get up in the morning. I get up in the morning. We've got to wake them up because they go to school. And imagine what it would be like if they walk out of their bedroom and I walk out of my bedroom and walking down the hall, we pass each other. And I don't say a word to either Jessica or Kirstie. I just ignore them. Imagine if we're sitting around the table at dinner time, and Jessica's here and Kirstie's over here, and we're just sitting there and I'm just looking at Joy, and I just totally ignore them. They say something, but I just pretend like I don't hear it. Imagine what it would be like if they said, you know, Dad, my, uh, my clothes are kind of wearing out. I'm growing out of them. And I say, well, here's 50 cents. See what you can do with that. And then I just move on. And their teeth need to be straightened out. They need braces. But I say, you know what? I've got other things that I want to use my money for than your teeth. And they say, well, we need some uh, money because we're going to high school and we've got these clubs we want to join. I say, well, good luck with that because I've got other areas that I want to spend my money on. And so as they grow up, I might give them 50 cents here. Maybe they can find something at Target. I don't know. But I never really give anything that really helps them grow and mature. 
I don't give to them emotionally. I don't give to them verbally. I don't give to them financially. I just don't give to them because I treat them as if they are a stranger in my house. And if you knew me as a father like that, you would say, I want to take those girls out and give them a home that really loves them. And you would be correct. Now, as odd and as foreign as that kind of a mindset would be for me to treat my girls that way, God says, you know, you're a household of God. And so, therefore, you become a family together. And as weird as it would be for me to treat my daughters as strangers, God says it's equally weird to God that any of us in this room would treat others as strangers. Because sometimes we get that way. We're not generous. We walk by someone. We don't say anything. We're kind of consumed with our own things. And I, I can do that. I do that. And I think to myself, what's wrong with me? If I am who God says I am, part of the household of God, then isn't, aren't all the people around me part of a family that I want to engage with? That's, that's one of the reasons why we did what we did last Sunday night, if you were part of that. We had this thing called Calvary Goes to Dinner. We had over 200 people participate. And there were strangers that were going to strangers' homes that they had never met. We had 12 people come to our home. And some of them, I didn't know them. I wouldn't have known them if they had walked down the street because I'd never met them. I just had a name, but I didn't know who they were facially to see them. And so when I opened the door to them, it could have been just anybody. I just assumed they are part of the Calvary Goes to Dinner because I didn't recognize them. And they walked on in. And we had a woman that came she had been to our church two times. And she showed up at a stranger's home, our home, all by herself. And I was amazed at that because I couldn't do that. And then we had another couple that's been in our Calvary church for 30, 40 years. As we sat around our dining room, it was interesting to hear the conversations that we kind of helped people to get to know each other. And they would say, well, where do you sit in church? I've never seen you before. And these relationships began to be formed in ways that wouldn't otherwise take place because something happens when you sit in front of a piece of food. You begin to have openness to the people around you. And as part of that, no longer a stranger or an alien. And, and let, me, let me confess something to you. I need to come down here to make a confession to you. Some of you know me and some of you probably don't know me and that's okay. I'd like to get better acquainted, but I have a confession to make. So brace yourselves. This may be hard for some of you to recognize that I actually have failures in my life. I know that. It's hard for me to realize that. But uh, when I uh, am on vacation, I will sometimes go to other churches. And one of the churches that I like to go to on vacation, and I'll tell you why, but one of the churches is Saddleback Church. You all heard of Saddleback Church? Oh, yeah, we all heard of Saddleback Church. So I like to go to Saddleback Church, and let me be, you know, candid with my selfishness, because one of the reasons I like to go to Saddleback is because I can ride my motorcycle out Santiago Canyon Road and pull into their parking lot right off of the, you know, as you go by Cook's Corner, and you just kind of loop around, you come into the parking lot, and you ever done that? It's, oh, well, you should try it, you should try it. And so, uh, and then there's a little spot for the motorcycle to be parked, and then I, I will come into Saddleback Church. You know, it's a big, it's a big building, it's sort of a big building like this although it somehow feels a little more intimate than ours. But nevertheless, it's a big building where you go inside there. And what I love to do is to Saddleback Church is to come back here. I love you people back here. I love you guys back here. But I'll see this little rope like this, and I'll just go like this. And I'll sit right here. And the reason I'll sit here is because there's lots of empty seats beside me. 
I like, do you like that? I like it back here, don't you? It's kind of nice. And so I sit here like this, and because you know why? I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to be bothered by people around me. You're not selfish. Can you believe? I'm a pastor. I've been doing this for a long time. And yet that's my attitude. So I confess my sins to you right now. Do you forgive me? Uh, some of you did, I think. <laughs> so, what? Yeah, I built my wall. Thank you for listening. I appreciate that. Good for you. Even though he convicted me, he, uh, he, had, he was listening. And so I, I sit back like that, and so I understand because when I come and they have greeters there, I, st- I just want to be by myself. And it's, it's outside my comfort zone to begin to engage with people that I don't know. I can be kind of an introvert at heart. And so being alone is, is a comfort zone for me. And so one of the things that God has convicted my heart in this, and I look at this and I say, well, you are no, this is what God says. This, he says this to me. He's talking to me. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're a fellow citizen of the saints and of God's household. I say, well, if, that, if that's what you're telling me, Lord, then how dare me sit back here all by myself at Saddleback Church and say, don't talk to me, leave me alone. And so all I want to say is that if you're a guest here, in fact, we had a, we had a couple that talked to me after first hour, and they came up to me, and they said, we've been here at your church for two Sundays now, and when you had me go over to talk to someone else to answer this question, she said it was one of the best things that happened to me in the service, because it helped me to get to know, and it was Jack Dean. Some of you know Jack Dean? So Jack Dean's this big, big guy, and she said, Jack did a wonderful job, and we've gotten to know him in a way that we would never have gotten to know him. So what God does is he creates a household. He calls the household of God. Where he says in this church, in this community, in this room, as big as it is, one of the challenges we face, we have a big room, we're thankful for the big room, but it leaves lots of empty seats and there's lots of seats between us. And that's why we put these little ropes back here to sort of push us. Because sometimes I need to be pushed. And one of the last things I'd ever want to happen at Saddleback Church if I was a guest, and if you're a guest, I get it. I understand. I am you. You are me. I get it. But one of the last things I'd want to have in a, if I went to Saddleback Church and I was sitting there in the back all by myself with lots of empty seats around me, the last thing I'd want to have happen is what we're going to do right now. <laughs> so I want to prepare you. Because what I would love for you to do is to make sure that there are no strangers or aliens sitting around you. And so we have a question on the screen. In what ways do you experience the benefits of knowing Jesus Christ? In what way is the church of benefit to you? What do you think is the positive outcome of a church? So I'm going to encourage folks. Like, here's a group. You don't need to have chairs between you. I'm glad you're here, but you're way back here. Head Head of our school ministry team. And so, uh, but we want to unite together. So let me encourage you to find, get up. If there's like two or three seats, you will have to literally get up because otherwise you're going to be yelling uh, to get connected so there's no strangers or aliens. We want to do what God says. And then talk about what are the benefits of the church. We're going to take three minutes to do that. So thank you.
Okay, we got 10 seconds. 10 seconds, we'll get back together. All right, all right. Thanks so much. We don't want you to be too friendly. We don't want to overdo it. So, thank you. We'll refocus for just a moment. You can continue your conversations after church, a claim jumper if you like. Thank you. Thanks for indulging me. I know we've done this a number of times and just wanted to give a little context for why we try to do those things and appreciate you all. And uh, thank you. Thank you for, that was, that was relatively painless, wasn't it? Isn't there something sort of good about that? I, I know that I need to be pushed out of my comfort zone every so often because it's just part of helping me grow. Because if I just live in my little safe comfort zone, then I, I'm just going to become like a zombie. We want more than that, obviously. And so we thank you. And thank you for folks in the back there for letting me, you know, talk and poke with you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for letting me point you out back there. We're glad you're back there. So we're glad to have all of you here, wherever you sit. But don't you see the value of no longer being a stranger, an alien, but... How much better is it to know the people that we come, and I'm going to show you why that's going to be so good as we finish up here this morning. Let me show you a second thing that happens. When Jesus Christ tears down the walls, when Jesus Christ changes hearts and minds so we reconcile through the blood of Christ on that cross to cleanse us of all sins so that we become one body in Christ, that is a miracle. The second thing that's going to happen is this. We're a household where the Bible and the character of Christ begin to direct our lives begins to give us new direction, gives us new modeling. Jesus is our model. The Word of God is our truth. And so we live according to what Jesus would have done. We live according to what the Bible says we should do. And so there are some churches that have Jesus Christ chiseled into the literal side of their, their church. That's fine. It's a reminder. But I don't want it to be just a memorial on the outside. I want it to be a reality on the inside. I want to show you what that might look like. Because if you don't have a good foundation, you're going to fall, you're going to fall apart. A family, an individual, a business, a friendship. If you don't have quality relationships built upon the Bible, that is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that's the Bible, the Word of God, you don't have that, you're going to crumble. It's just a matter of time as to where it will happen. And so I want to share with you a story of what happens when the Bible begins to direct lives under duress where there have been walls. There's a wonderful story that I read recently. She's written a book about it recently, and it's a story of Jean Bishop. Jean Bishop had a sister, Nancy, and a husband, Richard, and Jean's sister and husband were terribly, if they're as, even as, as redundant as it says, terribly murdered in April the 7th, 1990. She heard about it on Palm Sunday. She was at church. I said, you better come home, and she thought it would be just an accident, but she found out that her sister had been murdered and her husband murdered, her brother-in-law, by a fellow by the name of David Biro, B-I-R-O. Went through the court's sentence, life sentence. That's in 1990 after the court system has done its thing. And so he's put away in a federal prison for the rest of his life. And she just tries to get on with her life. And over the course of the next, oh, 25 years or so, way all the way to about 2013, just a couple of years ago, God began to work in her heart in a way that she didn't expect. 
because she viewed this guy who had done this terrible thing. It was a horrendous thing. And this is what she said about it. She said, I had built this wall. This is like Paul. I had built this wall that was convenient for me. We love to build the wall to keep away the people we don't want to be with. I thought, because you haven't apologized to me, that, that absolves me of the responsibility of reaching out to you. So she lived with that wall. And then she began to read. She began to counsel together with others. And she read a piece that was written by a, by a Christian man that talks about peace and reconciliation, that what happens when Christ gets a hold of your life, you begin to change. And one of the things that he wrote and that she read are these words. No Christian is ever in the position of privilege, wronged one or wrongdoer, where he or she is excused from the responsibility of working for reconciliation. And she went and talked to the man that wrote that. She was so convicted. Because she had a mindset about this David Biro that, that uh, as you'll see, she wants to make him rot in prison. As a result of that, about 2013, January 2013, just a couple of years ago, she began to write him a letter. And he responded. She said, I think maybe I should come and visit you. And he says, Okay. So she came to visit David Biro and ended up visiting this murderer of her sister and brother-in-law. And her sister was pregnant at the time, so it was three lives that were lost. And began to visit him and went there 15 times to see him. And here's one of the things that she said. I felt my heart hard and rigid, cracking open. I had always made a divide between Nancy's killer and me. Him, bad murderer. Me, innocent victim's family member. The truth was, there was no division between us before God. We're both flawed. We're both fallen. But God began to penetrate her heart. In fact, she has in those 15 uh, times of visiting him, David B. Rowe said, you know, never before have I confessed to the sin, to the crime that I committed, but I confess to you that I did do that. And he said this to her. Every time you come and visit me, I regret all the more that I murdered your sister and her husband. It pains me more because you visit me and I get to know you. And now I realize more what I've done. It's like he, in Romans chapter 12, it talks about loving someone to heap coals of fire on them. And he was feeling the agony of his sin, his murderous condition. She had said about that, what I wanted for him was to rot in prison and suffer, and that would make him sorry. But what made him sorry is to experience the unconditional love of God and the forgiveness of his victim's family members. It's sort of like what Romans 2.4 says, God's kindness leads us to repentance. That when I take that step to go out of the comfort zone, to tear down the wall, to begin to bridge and reconcile with those that I want to remain distant from, who are my strangers and my aliens, and I begin to see them as a fellow citizen of the household of God or potentially become a fellow citizen of the household of God, it begins to break down and my heart that is hard and rigid begins to crack open. And that's what she's saying and that's what the Bible teaches us. As hard as it is for me or for us to do that, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what she begins began to practice. She did what Jesus would have done, and it began to change her as well as David, the murderer. And so she said this, it's not okay what you did to him, but I'm not going to hate you. I'm not going to wish evil on you. I'm going to wish the opposite, 
I'm going to wish that you will be redeemed. Now that is a life built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets where Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. That's life-changing. Because when Christ is my cornerstone, he begins to change the way I live and the way I relate, the way I think, my attitude, my behavior. That's the difference. That's the household of God. That's what happens when walls are torn down by Jesus himself. And so we find then this, a household where you fit in and connect with others to grow in your faith, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We are a holy temple. We begin to be fitted together. Now, Ryan Rail and Tom Baylor have been watching them. They've been building a thing that we're, they call a pergola. It's going to be out there in the patio area. There's going to be little cushy uh, uh, couches out there for you to sit on and to engage with and to build relationships and to get rid of strangers by making them your friends. And part of that is this wood. This is a raw piece of lumber. It's not been treated at all. It's just been cut up to this particular size, and there are scars on it. You can't see it. There's a little scar here. There's a little discoloration down here, and it's very, very rough and gruff. And uh, it's the kind of wood that if you use the analogy of Paul where he says being fitted together, it's where we start with God. We're sort of this rough, unfinished piece of wood. But God chooses us when we're like this. Because I want to take you like this, God says, and I want to change you because then he takes that piece of wood and he changes it, he sands it, he refines it, he stains it, he begins to put holes in it because it's going to be part of something bigger than just a piece of wood. Now, if you just see a piece of wood like that laying around, you think nothing of it. But when you begin to take pieces of wood and you begin to shape them, you actually begin to build something. And what's going to be out there in the patio is a pergola. Pergola. I wanted to call it a gazebo, but I said, no, it's a pergola. All right. And so that's going to be out there in the patio. Now, here's the thing that struck me as I think about that. When God chooses us, he chooses us as this really unfinished piece so that in Jesus we begin to tear down the walls, we begin to change hearts and minds, we begin to reconcile, we begin to improve, and it begins to polish us, it begins to stain us, it begins to shape us, it begins to sand us so we're smoother, and then it begins to sometimes painfully put holes that hurt because he says, because I want to take you and make you more than just a piece of wood. I want to turn you into something much bigger than yourself that you're part of something that's going to have significant opportunity to help other people. I want to fit you together, as he says. I want to fit you together to a holy temple of God. And a lot of us, we're sometimes, I know I can be content just as a piece of wood, but God says, no, I'm going to sand you and that's going to hurt. I'm going to put holes that are going to be painful. I'm going to take you through the process of refinement so that you can take this piece and place you into that, that building. And God wants to do that with us. He doesn't want any lone pieces of lumber just hanging around. He wants to put us together as a body of Christ so we can accomplish something bigger than ourselves. And here is what that is. The very last thing. So you're a household of God where God is refining and changing you so he can fit you together, so you can become part of a structure that is more powerful than what any individual on themselves could do. 
so that he says in Ephesians 2.22, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We become a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And here's the reality. When you're a dwelling of God in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that parts the Red Sea, the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that raised Lazarus from the dead, the Holy Spirit that turns water into wine, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that changes lives. It's powerful that when you're fitted together, you do this powerful thing that you don't nearly do as well when you're just a single piece of lumber. And let me give you an example how you and I, no longer strangers and aliens, household of God, can work together to make a difference in people's lives. One family can illustrate that for us. They are Sean and Nicole Connolly. I don't know if you've heard of them or heard about them. They have four little girls, and then they had a little baby that was born. I think it was in August. And little Noah is his name, and Noah was born, and he, I think he, and I don't understand fully, but he had like a half of a heart, or a part of his heart was not functioning. And so nobody knew if Noah would live beyond a few days. So there were surgeries and everything else, and here's an image of Noah at Chalk Hospital over here. He's in Chalk Hospital over here for a couple months. He was just released just a couple of days ago or in this last week. I went over and heard about so many of our dear feet people like Eric Wakeling, Matt Davis, Shelley Davis, and so many others of you have gone there and be of support and prayer and help. And I was visiting with Nicole, and we hadn't met before that I could recall. I don't believe we had. And as I walked into the room, into that little intensive care area where little Noah was uh, looking as he is there on the uh, left-hand side, and she was asleep, and I didn't want to wake her up, and then she stirred, and so we chatted. We sat on a little bench. I introduced myself. And, oh, yeah. She said, I didn't recognize you. And it's because they often sit in the back because of all the little kids, and I thought to myself, it's better that you really don't see what I look like. <laughs> and so she said, but I recognize your voice. Okay. Well, that's, that's who I am. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Tell me about it. And so we shared, she shared a little bit about her situation, about Noah. And she said, you know, we're kind of new to Calvary Church. And, you know, is this our home or is it not our home? I don't know. We're trying to decide. Is this a good place for us, good fit for us? And she said, but I have experienced the kind of love and support and encouragement from people unlike anything I could have imagined. People coming to pray, people praying, groups of people praying, people coming to the hospital, providing for us, supporting all so many ways that so many people here at Calvary have helped them out. And she said, when I see all that love that we've experienced, there's just no way that this isn't our home. This is our home. And one image that was painted, that's like we circled the wagons to help them out. And so Noah still needs surgeries. He still has a long ways to go. Here's Sean and Nicole on either side and their family in the middle. Uh, four little girls, five kids now. That's a quiverful. That's a lot. High demand. Lots of responsibility. Pressure. And here's our preschool teachers, Tina and her crew. And somebody made these little shirts that says, My heart beats for Noah. And that's what they're wearing here. One of the Connolly's daughters is standing there in the front. And I think about this, and I think about what 
can take place. And I think I saw Nicole come in. Nicole, are you over there somewhere? Nicole is sitting there. She's holding Noah right now, way over there to the side of the wall. You want to just go like this so they can, there you go. Thank you. We love the Connollys. And... and I know that you have needs too. You have needs too. And we want to help. But one of the things we could do now as a household of God is to come together. And when we know about a need, we want to help. We can't always do everything we can do, but we want to do something. And a web page has been created. I'm Shelly Davis, or somebody created this web page. Because myheartbeatsfornoah.com. You might want to write that down. Because if you go to that web page, you will find an opportunity for you and me to make a difference with them. And there's a little GoFundMe, and if you have some money, that's great. But one of the things that's on there that I think all of us in some way or another could help out, there is a listing there on the bottom corner there that you can't hardly read, but it talks about opportunities to bring meals, bring meals to the Connollys. Basic things. A family of seven has to eat. They eat every day whether they want to or not. And we want to help them eat. And so if you'd like to help, you can go to that web page there, and you can choose a date and say, I want to bring some food to you today. Because isn't that what the household of God does? When our girls are sick, we drop everything to go help them. When our family is sick, we drop everything to go help them. We support those who are in need. And that's why I say at the very beginning, we don't want any strangers or aliens. Because if Nicole was a stranger to us, we would never know of the need for her. And the more we tear down the walls of strangeness and build the concept of fellow citizenship of a household of God, the more we can say we want to help tear down that wall, we want to help change the hearts and minds, we want to come alongside so you fit in and connect, and you're not just a lone piece of lumber, but you're part of the structure called the household of God. And that's why we're always better together. And that's my invitation to you. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you that you're a God who sees our needs, and we know that there are many other needs beyond the Connollys that are here. Father, I'm sure that there are husbands and wives who have walls between them, and we would love to try to help Jesus remove that wall. There are some of us with estranged relationships. There are some of us who are strangers and, and we're comfortable in our stranger role. But help people like me to move beyond, beyond my comfort zone and bridge with those beyond me so I fit in and become part of a structure, part of a family that accomplishes more together than me is a lone piece of wood. So help us, Father, and help Nicole. Help Sean. Heal Noah. Oh, God, speak into their lives your love, your kindness, your power. A dwelling of the Holy Spirit is there in their home already. Father, may you continue to complete what needs to take place for them. 
And Father, as we continue to worship you now, may we honor you. As I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.